Hi, this is the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. This is the third in a series of podcasts where I focus on a particular part of English instruction or English-related matters in detail. In this episode, I'm talking to Catherine Mortimer. Catherine is the Associate Assistant Principal at a secondary school in Torquay and author of the book Disciplinary Literacy and Explicit Vocabulary Teaching, a whole school approach to closing the attainment gap. We discuss the most effective or important approaches to establishing an accurate reading age or level for students, whether targeted vocabulary instruction in every subject looks the same or different depending on which subject it is, how can using PowerPoints versus booklets make a difference for students who struggle to read, if there is any noticeable correlation between behaviour and literacy levels, how knowledge organisers and retrieval practice aid student literacy, on tutor reading programmes, how to do them well when tutors aren't necessarily English teachers, and if Catherine had to recommend three cornerstones of an effective literacy programme in a school, what would they be? I'm extremely grateful to be able to talk to people like Catherine who are clearly experts in their field and are ready with a litany of practical examples and strategies to go away with. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan HK. Um, okay, Catherine, in, in your opinion, what are the most effective or important approaches to establish, uh, establishing an accurate reading age for students once they start school or enter a certain grade level? Okay, well, um, I think we often talk about reading ages, um, but it can be more useful to consider standardised schools. Um, I don't know if you're kind of familiar with that. Um, kind of concept but there's a couple of online programs um, which essentially take into account how old a child is by months Um, because obviously when a child starts secondary school um, they're either just 11 or um, they're nearly 12 Um, and so um, a standardised score uh, compares their performance with uh, similar age students nationally. Um, And that gives you a more accurate picture in terms of how concerned you should be um, about their particular literacy level. So what we do um, when we're looking at intervention, because that I, I assume for most people, that's the reason we want to know Uh, their reading ages particularly when they first arrive with us is to determine who's furthest behind and who therefore is our bottom 10 percent 20 percent that we most need to to intervene with Um, so there's packages like um, the NGRT uh, which is offered by GL assessments which I think uh, from my experience and kind of speaking to other um, people in similar roles um, over the last sort of, I don't know, 10 years um, is probably the, the most reliable um, or is most like well thought of. Um, and that does come out with a standardised score, as I say, um, and you can rank order your students um, and it will take into account how old they are um, and say, well, actually, 
they it seems like they're behind um because it gives a reading age as well um and so they might seem like that this child is further behind than this one but actually they're 11 months younger than them so it, it factors all of that in um and also the fact that it compares with national um statistics also shows how concerned they should be or how concerned we should be when relating to the national picture, yeah, national picture. Sorry. Um, so obviously, at the moment, that's really useful because there's been so much disruption um, in education. So it's it's useful for us to to see well how far behind are our children compared to the children that they're going to be competing against when they're sitting their GCSEs. Um, so that's that's um, what I would say in answer to that question, but. Obviously, not everyone can afford to to do those tests. So um, there are paper based options available. The harder test, um, I know, is is one that we've done in the past for those students who perhaps arrive late with us or that we want to do follow up testing that we don't use the online program necessarily. Um, They do offer more paper based ones that that will can be done with the TA that can then be marked. It's just then obviously the time that goes into that, but it all, all depends how much money you've got available to do the testing, really. We, um, at the school I work at currently, we have, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, they have, um, when they're in the middle school, they have the Midius test. Yeah. And then I think further on in the school, it's, I think it's Yellis or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I was introduced to that particular um, test, it, it came with the caveat of, if there are any parents who are particularly worried or concerned by the results that are coming back, tell them, you know, it's a one-off test. It is reliable, but it doesn't give you the, the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you, is that, is that a useful thing to say? Is it a valid thing to say? Is it an accurate thing to say in your experience? Are these tests um, reliable? Do they kind of deliver in terms of given a hot, like a rounded image of the child's um, ability? I think that's definitely a useful thing to say. And anyone who has experience at delivering these kind of tests would say that on an individual level, that a lot of caution should be applied to any set of results. And it's actually more valid to consider it from a cohort perspective. So you're looking at the whole cohort when they first join, um, looking at your percentages and then if you're going to retest them again, looking at the progress of the cohort as a whole, as opposed to individuals. Um, and certainly we've got a lot of experience of students who come in, do the reading test, don't take it very seriously, um, press the wrong buttons or click through too quickly. And you think, oh, my goodness, their reading age is five. And then they retest and you explain right. Like, make sure that you take it seriously, do this, um, make sure that you're reading this section, whatever, properly, and they come out and actually their reading age is fine. So we tend to retest our very bottom percentage of students. We use a new programme called Lexplore, which is um, mainly for primary school students. It was designed for, um, it's like an eye tracking software, which picks up if they have any problems with reading, problems with their eyesight that might be causing some of the literacy delays. So it's like a second level of testing, if you like. Mm. 
And then depending on how weak the students are, we get some that really, really struggle. And so we need to do even further reading aloud, listening to them, giving them very, very simple texts uh, in order to determine where where they are because they kind of fall off the bottom of the scale, if you like. We don't get a huge number of those. Uh, But yeah, I think any testing of reading ages or standardised score needs to be seen as a part of a picture. Uh, like you say, exactly the explanation that you give. It's not the whole picture. I see. Okay. Um, so one way to kind of combat um, literacy deficits or to build literacy, whichever way you want to look at it, which has kind of done the rounds in the last few years, is this idea of targeted vocabulary instruction. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more aware of it in English through like uh, the work of Alex Quigley and uh, people like that but it, it's been sort of talked about um, in relation to every subject approaching mm-hmm. uh, targeted vocabulary instruction does it look different depending on the subject that you teach or or is there a consistent approach in your opinion? Well I think the first thing to remember is that not all subjects are in classrooms in the same way as English it was within a classroom. So if we take PE, for example, um, when I was kind of putting the book together and looking at the different chapters, uh, I know that some people might assume that PE is not necessarily a place where you can improve literacy, but I think that targeted vocabulary instruction is certainly an area that you can that you can develop within PE, but you're not going to do it in the same way as you would do if you're an English teacher because you're not in a classroom, but you've got a huge opportunity. And I know really good PE teachers do this anyway. They don't need to be told to do it by a literacy coordinator. That when they're doing warm-ups, talk to the students about which different muscles it is that they're using and be very explicit, perhaps even looking at some of the word roots and the connections between why a particular muscle has this name. Um, If you think of other words that sound similar to that, it's for this reason. Can't think any examples off the top of my head um, at the moment, but I I know people who are more familiar with with that um, will will know what I'm talking about. And, And it's the same in lots of subjects that you might not assume uh, are the the perfect vehicles for literacy but actually there are more imaginative and creative ways that you can deliver targeted vocabulary instruction music lessons I think is another one uh, where you might not be sat behind a desk with a pen and paper but you you still can consider very effectively which key terms which key vocabulary terms are we going to to target and circle back over and perhaps incorporate into our retrieval practice and our homework. Uh, Because I think we often focus on that initial delivery of vocabulary. um, And I think that that there's certainly consistent approaches within a classroom that that a school can adopt. Um, You mentioned Alex Quigley, uh, Bringing Words to Life by Beck et al, uh, Reading Reconsidered, have some fantastic strategies that can be consistently applied. Uh, For example, when you're giving a a word, give a non-example, give a word that's similar but different. So this word is similar to this one, but actually they're not the same word. So avoiding the the deficit model of synonyms. Oh, this word means the same as this, when actually it doesn't. There's subtle differences. 
Um, so that initial in the classroom teaching of vocabulary is obviously important, but it's not just about that. It's about how is that vocabulary going to be embedded? How are we going to circle back over that in six months to, or in two weeks time, six months time, a year's time um, and, and feed it into what happens outside the classroom with retrieval practice and so on as well. Hmm. Is, uh, um, is it is it fair to say that often in your experience you were talking about like uh, discussing um, this kind of thing with um, people like your kind of contemporaries in other schools in different parts of the country? How often is the literacy coordinator in a school an English teacher, would you say? Um, I'd say it's common. Yeah. I would say that history teachers I've seen recently have come up um trying to think robin hardman i've just read his book uh the writing game uh and he's a history teacher and actually i was speaking to a history teacher who's read it and she said it was really great to read something that wasn't written by an english teacher um but yeah it it is predominantly the domain of the english teacher at the moment but I'm really hoping with the the fantastic report that the EF obviously came up with with the disciplinary literacy side of things that actually more teachers will realize that actually literacy isn't um just I think I think to be honest that debate is done I think teachers do know that that they have a role to play when it comes to literacy but I think more and more they'll come to realize that actually uh, there is no secret to this that actually this is something that I could coordinate across the school um there there's an amazing science teacher um who I know is a literacy coordinator I can't think of her name um Adam Boxer he's science Mm. but his blog's fantastic links to literacy um I, I know we'll perhaps talk about booklets and things later on but um yeah I think there's there's lots of of teachers increasingly so I think in the current current landscape who are contributing brilliantly to to the literacy conversation that's really encouraging um I'll I'll come on to the kind of the booklets thing right now if you don't mind um so the the whole kind of um I remember reading this um in your work and I'd never thought about this before I came across it and obviously for the last 12 13 years whatever it's been since I've been teaching powerpoints and booklets um I I didn't necessarily think they were interchangeable but I thought you know they they more or less offered the same thing but how can using powerpoints as opposed to booklets or vice versa make the difference for students who struggle to read initially so I think the thing with PowerPoints, and this is what I learned visiting Michaela years ago when they, pretty soon after they first opened, it was quite predictable how fantastic their results were going to be, not, not for the top end, but but for all children. Because um, and one of the key factors, I think, that I took away from the visit and applied to my um, year eight group who, who struggled with literacy was this use of booklets and it, it was quite a moment for me when because uh, we have visualizers I've been using visualizers for a while so that was quite straightforward to to produce a booklet and and what I have my materials are the exact same as what the students have and when I'm filling in the date above the title um, when I'm completing the answers to the do now it's so so clear to those students 
whereabouts it needs to be and what it mm. needs to look like. And anyone who's tried to sort of say to students, oh, draw this table in your book, and then looked at the variations <laughs> of tables that appear um, when you've got a group uh, who are like that with those kind of characters. It's just, um, it's just mind blowing sometimes. And and, and it is because of, of a lot of the, the barriers and the difficulties that they have aren't, aren't just about literacy as in reading. It's about spatial awareness and, and how do I use a ruler and, and just hand and eye coordination a lot of the time. And I think, Using those booklets just removes so much of that, um, which wasn't the first point I was going to talk about. Actually, it was it was um, so that's important. But also, I think our initial explanations and our expositions as teachers, when they appear on PowerPoint slides, it can be really hard uh, one to concentrate on someone who's saying something at the same time as it's appearing on a screen and I'm, am I supposed to be reading it? Am I supposed to be listening? Um, and oh, by the way, cause I'm looking around, what's that person over there doing? Um, that's actually a bit more interesting than the teacher. Um, but if I'm just following along in my workbook, then I've got my own kind of space where I'm, I'm focused or more likely to be focused on, on what I'm supposed to be doing than if I've got, the input of the screen up there and the input of the teacher over here. Um, it's also very transitory. So uh, you, you'll perhaps move from one slide to another, to another. Um, and if a child's appeared late to the lesson or perhaps was thinking about what they're having for dinner um, for a few minutes and they're like, oh yeah, I've missed that bit. But I really needed to know that because now I've got no idea what's happening. <laughs> um, with the workbook, they can just kind of look back. Um, and I've noticed this, this hugely with students with poor attendance, actually, particularly students. I know we're focusing on ones with weaker literacy skills, but um, if we think about students who who don't necessarily have weak literacy skills, but just miss an awful lot of school for a variety of reasons, um, it's just so powerful that, for them to be able to look back and see what they've missed. Um, and as you, you as a teacher, because you fill it in perfectly as it should be, the number of students I've had in the last few years like oh miss can I borrow your book um and catch up and and they have and because they're actually pretty bright and they've um they're really up to speed it's really helped with with that issue I think I think particularly now in the the year of I hate to bring it back to COVID-19 but yes. there are students well, who yeah. in my school um just this week like a a, a girl um dad doesn't want her to come in mainly because you know they've, they've got elderly relatives at home and that means that all of her kind of classes are being done asynchronously and it's um it's just people yeah students are in students are out and I think that is a massive it's, it can have like a massive um influence on students um yeah learning it's it's such an effective intervention um the the the, the point you make as well about the something being on the powerpoint and the teacher reading it out. Um, I found that the closer I am to having had a coffee, the more likely <laughs> I am to uh, to read out off the board. End of the day, there's no chance. Um, yeah. But yeah, start of the day, it's it's very likely. Um, in terms of, I've heard this kind of um, point be made before. Uh, to what extent would do you say that there's a noticeable correlation between behaviour? or undesirable behaviour and literacy levels, in your opinion? 
Um, so I, I think it's insanely complicated. Um, mm. And I think actually some of the best behaved, most lovely groups that I've had have been made up of um, students who actually are really, really behind with their literacy. Um, and it, they're not behind because their behaviour is undesirable. Um, they're behind because they've got these really um, challenging barriers that that prevent them from making progress. And however hard they've tried and the intervention that they've had over the years, they still do really struggle. Um, so I think you've got you've got kind of that side of things um, which impacts on literacy. Um, so I think in my and I'm purely talking from my, from my own experience, um, there is kind of research to connect SEN, uh, poverty, disadvantage, literacy, mm. all, all of these things. But I'm um, just talking from my own personal experience. Um, it's not so much your very very weakest. Um, that necessarily have the behaviour problems, although sometimes they do. Um, it's often you're kind of just below the middle of, if you're talking about your spectrum of standardised scores, it's the students who perhaps are just around about your 90. If, if 100 is your, your sort of bang on average, um, the ones that are maybe at 85, 90, who uh, have in, lots of really complex things happening that impact on their behaviour and their engagement with education generally and their, their feelings about school generally and the, their attendance at school generally, their effort, the homework that they do. And I think you often kind of get this perfect storm where actually if a student did kind of decide one day, right, yes, I'm going to work hard at school um, and I'm going to start engaging with things that that literacy wouldn't necessarily it might be a bit of a barrier and that they would have to to work that bit harder to kind of read and understand some of the words but if the motivation was there that they certainly could could do it so yeah I think if you can intervene with students and get them on board with literacy and get them um improving their literacy skills then that can have then a knock-on effect and undo a lot of their feelings about themselves that have built up over time around being unsuccessful at school the kind of learned helplessness and that kind of bootstrapping effect of of um kind of the opposite of the bootstrapping effect with the disadvantaged side of things um yeah so not a straightforward answer I don't think <laughs> no I'm, I think yeah it, well it's not a straightforward situation I guess but um um yeah I think I think you put it very kind of succinctly in terms of yeah in looking at it as positively as possible you can kind of maybe look to um strengthen them or enable them as best as possible um and two of the ways I know that you've talked about before is um or are uh, knowledge organizers and, and retrieval practice how exactly do they aid student literacy in your opinion so one of the kind of most illuminating um, bits of research that I've seen is the, the Scarborough Reading Rope. Um, which, I don't know if you've kind of seen a, um, an image of it, but it, it's um, Alex Quigley used a similar analogy when he was talking about training an essay writer and how you've got to break an essay down into the component strands 
and teach the component strands and then weave them together. And reading is exactly the same as that. And the, the different strands that are within the Scarborough reading rate, one of them is uh, vocabulary, one of them is background knowledge, um, and then you've got your decoding. Um, it, it's complicated to kind of explain, but it depends how much practice they've had of each of those things, how, how tightly woven the, the strands get together and how that then reflects their level of fluency. So I think as far as to answer your question about knowledge organisers and retrieval practice, one huge barrier to literacy can literally be not knowing what a particular word or an analogy is is referring to that if they had that background knowledge that would aid their comprehension so knowledge organizers the way that we sort of put them together anyway is very much think like stripping it down um christian council talks about the the core and the hinterland like what's the core knowledge that you need and what's the the hinterland like the exciting and interesting things that you the the vehicles that you use to communicate that core knowledge so as far as reading is concerned like that those core strands of of core knowledge within each subject that that are vital to success at GCSE I'm not talking about year sevens doing GCSE exam papers I'm talking about if you're a history teacher for example and you know that one of the units that you're going to cover is going to be about uh, a war or a conflict, unsurprisingly, <laughs> um, perhaps, that when you're teaching um, a particular conflict in, in year seven, that some of the vocabulary and the terms that you're using are, are foregrounding that that's going to come later. So your hinterland is different, like the actual conflict is different, but some, and I appreciate I'm not a history teacher, but um, having been in lots of history lessons, like there's obviously a huge amount of dates and facts and things like that, that that they don't necessarily need to know in year seven onto GCSE. But there are certainly concepts and ideas about the reasons behind that, that certain conflicts took place, leadership um, analysis that does carry through. Um, and it's those things that you need to focus on um, within knowledge organisers and carry them through. I think English is probably one of the, the subjects that for years was just considered to be skills. And it doesn't matter what mm. which text you teach. You, you can teach them these skills and they can be successful at GCSE. But we've we've sort of come out to the opinion that actually it does matter which text you teach. and It does matter yeah. what, what knowledge um that students are, are taught and so I know this is controversial because I know that some English teachers particularly want teachers to be able to choose books that they're passionate about and everybody does a different text and things like that but it's, it's obviously different in different contexts but for our students we feel that having that really consistent and and structured in year seven they will um read Lord of the Flies and they will cover these key concepts that will prepare them for for GCSE study. Mm. Um, coming back to like I suppose novels or um, reading for pleasure and this kind of thing, um, tutor. I'm not. I'm never sure like what the the, <laughs> the kind of the collective, the 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 name for this that we've all de- decided on. I've gone for like tutor reading programs, essentially yeah. where the form tutor and the class read together. Um, 
how to do it? How do you do it well as a school when tutors, uh, most tutors, the vast majority of tutors aren't going to be English teachers? How can we kind of uh, implement it in the best way possible? So I think for us, in terms of our journey, the very first time we introduced tutor reading was uh, before I joined the school, actually. Um, and the texts that were chosen were, were selected because um, they were very, they were classics. They were on the list of books that if you went to Eton, then you would have read these books. So books like Journey to the Centre of the Earth, Wuthering Heights, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, like uh, lots of those kinds of books that, um, and I'm not knocking the the idea, I thought it was brilliant that that the the idea that these students should be introduced to these texts, but we had this kind of bizarre situation where students were reading Journeys to Centre of the Earth and Wuthering Heights with Tutor, and then they were reading Holes with their English teachers. (laughs) Um, And it it was just a a little bit of a a strange sort of contrast. So what I would say is that what's worked for us with getting teachers on board that teach all different subjects is by picking uh, books that are more engaging in terms of their current ideas and that the target for us is not necessarily to improve their tier two vocabulary um, necessarily. I mean, it's obviously nice if if they do. Um, It's more about fostering a love for reading and reading for pleasure, a love for stories, introducing authors that the, the actual teachers themselves regardless of the subject like they've all lots of them have children of their own who've enjoyed reading lots of them have read but like obviously um read and enjoyed reading themselves and um I tried to give a bit like I was talking about with English teachers that some people were obviously really passionate about English teachers choosing the books like I really try and get tutors to have as much choice as possible from a really really high quality young adult current books um, as far as possible, I mean, obviously it depends on budgets. When I first started it, however many years ago, it was like, what do we have in the cupboard, right? We're going to read that. And then gradually over years, I've been able to buy more and more sets that have been more kind of modern. Um, but yeah, I think I, I haven't had any experience of teachers kind of refusing to read or saying, I'm not an English teacher. It's not like we just don't have mm-hmm. that in our school at all. Um yeah and and um, how how long will they do they do it every day Catherine or or uh, and or how long do they do it for each day um so we're quite fortunate like over time our we call it period one now rather than tutor time it's it's increased um year on year pretty much so our tutor time is about 40 minutes long now um we've introduced these cultural knowledge books so it isn't the whole of that 40 minutes they spend 40 minutes uh reading the non-fiction articles as well um so it's around 15 to 20 minutes every day that they don't have assembly Mm. (coughs) excuse me um yeah so four out of the five days that's great um setting and sticking with reading for pleasure i suppose setting a good example for students um is really important i think i had a parent teacher 
interview day a few weeks ago and a, a dad, this is, this is just shameless self-promotion here, but the dad said, oh, you know, my daughter was really impressed. She saw you on the bus the other day and you were actually reading a book <laughs> and uh, she couldn't believe that, like, you know, you, you tell them to do it, but you actually do do it. Um, so that, but that was an incredibly sort of chance situation that that student saw me reading. Is there any way that we can make it? Um, it's obviously important for students to see teachers, parents, whatever, uh, also reading for pleasure. Do you know of any practical ways to make it explicit to students that this is happening? Uh, do you mean um, that teachers are reading as well and enjoying it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the tutor reading programme ha- certainly helps with that, with um, teachers kind of reading out books that they enjoy. Um, I mean, all of our teachers have signs on the door saying what their favourite book is, what they're currently mm. reading. Um, we possibly could update those <laughs> um, <laughs> a little more often. Uh, because like any kind of initiative like that, it, it's interesting when it first goes up, but then it sort of perhaps becomes part of the, the background. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of things that I've sort of tried over, over the years um, with varying levels of success. So um, ask teachers what their favourite books are and then had little stickers um, made. And then in the library, the sticker says, um, this is the favourite book of this particular teacher um mm. but that is quite <laughs> quite time consuming to, uh, to kind of yeah. keep keep up to that keep up with that and, and keep it re- um keep it relevant um I've made like well it's Alice Fisser Fury actually who probably um seen on Twitter amazing um advocate of literacy she's made these brilliant reading lists that are broken down by subject area so a couple of years ago um I made a pack of a uh, positive discrimination guide with like lots of different like SEN guidance that the Senko had put together and just various different things. And one of the things that went in there was a set of reading recommendations. So let's say I'm the school counsellor or I'm a pastoral leader or a head of year or a PE teacher and I've got um, a student with a particular interest, then they could refer to that. And it had books that, that fulfilled that. Um, Mm. We do subscribe to Accelerated Reader um, as well, which has got this great book finder where if they're interested in a particular book, they can find it. Um, Yeah, I think, to be honest, that's a real challenge. But I Mm. think having booklets in lessons and having the scripted exposition that the teacher reads aloud is another way of getting teachers to model reading and just Mm. for them to see that reading is a vital way of obtaining information mm. um and lastly the last question <coughs> for me is if, if um you've obviously kind of been in like your current position now and, and and spoken to um people in similar roles and you're very much like steeped in uh in the implementation of this um brilliant kind of initiative but if you were to zoom out a little bit like what are what would you recommend are the three cornerstones of an effective literacy program in a school, what what would they be? Okay, so the very first thing I did um, that I think was probably one of the most impactful, it wasn't actually being done from a literacy perspective. 
that was more about homework. But I think introducing knowledge organisers, um, I mean, there's a huge amount of reading, like Michaela have released a, a, a second book with kind of caution around knowledge organisers, how they should be used, how they shouldn't be used, because obviously, like with anything, um, any great idea, it kind of, um, once it's out there, it, like various different variations um, take place. But I think from a curriculum development point of view, because it was about, I don't know, seven years ago, six, seven years ago that we introduced them, what it did was help teachers to just pinpoint that core knowledge that that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. So I think that helped in terms of curriculum development, but also it helps from a literacy point of view, because when things are made crystal clear and transparent, this is the key knowledge that I need. Those students with weaker literacy skills, if they can really um, get on board with that, then that helps them with reading and accessing the exam papers and the materials that, that are going to come up um, exponentially. Um, obviously, that, that makes sense. So, yeah, knowledge organisers um, would be number one. Then I think booklets um, or workbooks, as we've got them, like all subjects have, have got these workbooks now. Um, I think it's really worth making sure that they're high quality and spending a lot of time to, to create them. And then, and within them having uh, the scripted expositions and all of that. And then the third thing I would say would be the retrieval practice, which I guess is connected, kind of cheating, <laughs> um, mentioning that one. Um, but yeah, making sure that each lesson has a recap of that that core knowledge um, and particularly the vocabulary that's going to be required for the lesson that's upcoming, I think is a really useful um, way of, of having the retrieval practice at the start of a lesson. Superb. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for uh, taking the time today, uh, Catherine, to uh, chat with me. It's it's a it's an area of the job which I suppose I'm not a literacy coordinator, I'm an English teacher, but I do always feel like there's a certain burden of expectation for me to know what I'm talking about when someone comes to me with um, this particular, um, uh, an issue relating to this particular thing. So thank you for being so articulate and thorough in your answer. All right. Thanks. Bye.